I'm Linda Holmes. Welcome to NPR's Book of the Day. We've got two very different books today about feeling at ease in the world when you're young. In a bit, we'll hear from a psychologist whose new book is about raising healthy teenagers through their sometimes stormy emotional lives. But first, a graphic novel called I, Miha about a teenager named Christine. Christine takes a trip from their home in Texas to Mexico to visit their grandparents. The book's writer and illustrator, Christine Suggs, talked to NPR's Scott Simon about how it feels to write a book about your teenage self and the struggles you had fitting in. And since the book's subtitle refers to Christine's bilingual summer, they talk, too, about choosing not to translate the Spanish in the book. That way, the readers who don't speak Spanish can sit with that experience, much as Christine does during their travels. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Christine Suggs has taken pages from their own life to tell the story of a 16-year-old Christine who takes a trip to visit their grandparents and aunt in Mexico, but they don't speak Spanish, they don't know the city, and they don't feel that they fit in, not in Mexico, not really back home in Texas either. Aimea, My Bilingual Summer in Mexico, is the graphic novel from Christine Suggs, an illustrator and comic artist who joins us now from Dallas. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Is this you, Christine? Are you two Christines? (laughs) I mean, it is a trip writing about your teenage self. I mean, I'm definitely a different person from when I was then, and it was really fun to kind of dive back into that mindset. You seem to make a point of not translating the Spanish that Christine hears. Uh, Why is that? So actually, my first couple of drafts, I translated everything down to the last hola. I was so paranoid that people wouldn't get it. And I think it's really hard to tell when it's a language you've grown up around, Mm -hmm. especially living in Texas. Everyone here knows a bit of Spanish enough to get by usually. And my editor actually pushed back and was like, you don't have to do that. Let your readers learn with you. Does it help us understand Christine's discomfort? I think so. Like, it's definitely a culture shock. You kind of miss hearing English after a while. You you start to feel like there's a line in the book that says, uh, I feel like just a body without a voice. And you feel a little bit isolated, honestly. Yeah. Christine muses at one point to themselves, I stick out here just like I do at home. Help us understand why. So I came up in the 90s and the early 2000s. And this was a time when I just didn't see anyone who looked like me on the cartoons that I so loved and adored. You know, this was the age of something literally called heroin chic. And I'm over here, a fat kid, a half Mexican kid. And I really felt out of place from a pretty early age and like got bullied from a pretty early age. So going to Mexico, I still didn't fit in there either. You know, everyone is like tanner than me. Everyone speaks the language better than me. It didn't quite feel like home, but it still did in a weird way. It's it's a very unique experience. Christine sees things that were part of of her mother's childhood. That helps, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think 
getting to see your parent as they were as a kid is always interesting, especially when you see your parent being parented. <laughs> and like, I love meeting my friend's parents. I'm like, oh, this is like a shortcut to all the knowledge of you. <laughs> That's usually the sign to start cringing and scrunching down, too, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, a little, yeah. It's like, oh, this is where you get all those ticks, huh? <laughs> but um, seeing my mom interact with her parents is always a trip because, like, they they have such a different relationship than me and my grandparents. They're much more affectionate with me. They spoil me like crazy. That's just kind of the culture there. It's like, yeah, you take care of the grandkids like that. But with her, they're like a little more reserved and they they are a little more strict even now, like as an adult, like the scene in the book where they make her go change her shirt, like that still happens today. Like <laughs> they have commentary on the fashion. We can feel that our children reflect us where as our grandchildren, oh, who cares? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I just want to feed them good food and spoil them. <laughs> yeah. You you were drawing from an early age. Yes. Uh, I didn't start taking it seriously until maybe like early high school, late middle school or something. I started copying some Lion King pictures <laughs> and, and some bad anime. But uh, <laughs> um, my older brother uh, would write these hilarious, like, James Bond knockoff stories. And so I wanted to be like him and everything. So I started copying him. And eventually I started wanting to, like, draw what I was writing about. And it just kind of grew from there. But I've always been, like, very visual and just very into that. And what comes first to you, uh, words or image? Mm, I would say words. Uh, whenever I write a comic, I, I always start with a script. And it's fortunate that I'm like mostly doing autobiographical work because I know how to draw myself. <laughs> so I don't have to practice that too much. Drawing yourself can be hard though, can't it? It can be. Um, one of the things that was really difficult was going back and finding photos of the trip for research because uh, I was the thinnest I've ever been. I was like roughly a size eight. And I felt the worst about my body I had ever had. So it was really a challenge to try to figure out how to depict that person and who they were then and being honest to like my shape at the time, but also to like try to show that at that time I was still struggling with my image, even though I'm I'm much larger now. You note that you're much larger now, but how do you feel now? I feel a million times better. <laughs> I feel pretty hot. <laughs> what changed? Oh, man, a lot of things. Uh, I would say namely therapy and <laughs> buying nicer clothes for myself. But, uh, you know, it took a lot of work and it took a lot of sitting down and realizing that I don't have to go along with what other people consider attractive and I can lean into what makes me feel good. Christine Suggs, uh, their new graphic novel for young readers. I'm, yeah, my bilingual summer in Mexico. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was very fun. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Teenagers have always been complicated. They've always had lots of big and complex feelings. Psychologist Lisa Damore says, though, that there are some challenges that grew out of the heaviest impacts of the pandemic that are still echoing for lots of kids. 
Her new book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, dives into all of this difficulty. She talks to NPR's Rachel Martin about social anxiety, when it's fine to feel lousy, and what it even means to be mentally healthy. In the couple of years that we've had to now try to recalibrate after the pandemic, what patterns did you see emerge in your patients? Let's take a 14-year-old who I care for, who had some anxieties about socializing prior to the pandemic, and then, of course, spent nearly a year and a half very cut off from social interactions. So now this young person is in a position where he can move back into the world. He can start to go to things, be invited to things, is getting invited to things that he wants to go to. But as the event approaches, whether it's a get-together with a friend or going to a game, he becomes very, very tense and very, very anxious about going. So the closer it gets, the more likely he becomes to say, okay, never mind, I'm just not going to go. When he does that, and this is what I worked with him on, two things happen at once. First, he instantly feels better. It actually does relieve his anxiety to decide not to go, right? As soon as he avoids, he feels instantly better. And we call that a reinforcing experience. You know, something that, you know, if you do it, you feel better, you want to do it again. The other problem is that whatever he imagined about how frightening that social activity was going to be goes completely unchallenged. Mm -hmm. And so his belief about how tense or anxiety-provoking a social situation could be remains completely as it was, mm -hmm. you know, without any new information. Yeah. So what we work on is just wading in. Um, and, I'll, you know, I'll work with him. I'll say, can you go to this thing for 20 minutes? And see, see what it looks like. And if you really, you know, if you're having a hard time after 20 minutes, you know, maybe you could leave at that point. And then we work on building up his strategies for managing anxiety when it comes. But the goal around avoidance is always to help the young person, or actually really a person of any age, slowly find their way back in. Because until they do, their anxiety will stay very high. Hmm. The point of your book, as I took it, is not to tell parents and caregivers how to make intense emotions like anxiety, but also anger and, and sadness and loneliness, to, to not make those emotions go away. You're saying that powerful emotions for teenagers are a feature, not a, not a bug. It's just something to be managed. Can you talk more about that? You know, I think... Something happened, it was happening before the pandemic, and I feel like it deepened in the pandemic, where there came to be this cultural equation of, you know you're mentally healthy if you feel good, or you know your kid's mentally healthy if your kid seems to feel good. Mm. And that's not how we've ever assessed this as researchers or clinicians. Mental health means having feelings that make sense in their context, and then managing those feelings well. Mm -hmm. So if you're a kid who, maybe you had a day where you did really, really poorly on a test, and you are quite upset about that, the presence of that distress is, first of all, probably unavoidable. And second of all, may even be useful in terms of changing behavior going forward or right. giving the kid inspiration to maybe study harder for the next one. So we don't see the presence of distress in that circumstance as grounds for concern. And we even see it as sort of evidence that the teenager works exactly as we expect they would, that they become upset under upsetting conditions. What we focus on is how the emotion gets managed. And 
What I work through in the book are better and worse ways that kids manage emotions and how adults can support them in building a really adaptive and broad repertoire for managing distress. But you're exactly right. It's not about preventing distress in teenagers or making it go away quickly. We really, we couldn't if we wanted to. The, the work of the adults around teenagers is to help them have adaptive and effective ways to handle upsetting feelings when they invariably arrive. I love this line that you wrote in the book. Somewhere along the way, we became afraid of being unhappy. And that doesn't, that's just not just for teenagers. That's for all, all of us, all the people at all yeah. the stages of human development. This, this idea that we can't be in that place of, of great sadness, that to be mentally healthy, you have to sort of let all this stuff roll off and, and be this kind of enlightened soul who doesn't let emotions get the better of you. And and it was reassuring to me anyway to read that it is okay, not only okay, but a sign of of solid mental health to be able to engage in those darker spaces. It's just giving yourself and your kids the tools to climb out. Absolutely. And, and I will say, we do have an adolescent mental health crisis that is real and that is getting a lot of much-deserved coverage. But I think that that has, in fact, exacerbated parents' anxieties about their kids' own distress because with all of those headlines that are telling a true story, I think a lot of parents are looking at their particular 15-year-old who is having a meltdown in their particular kitchen and thinking, how do I know this is normal adolescence and not a mental health concern? Yeah. And so my aim in working, on the, working through this book was to really give parents and adults around teenagers a way to tease those apart. And usually the way to know is if the feeling makes sense, that's a sign that things are moving in the right direction. And if the teenager handles it in ways that bring relief and do no harm, you can probably also feel reassured that you're looking at typical distress. Whereas if a teenager's feelings are way out of proportion to the event, or they handle the feelings in ways that are costly, such as smoking a lot of marijuana or being really hard on the people around them or getting online and stirring up all sorts of you know, trouble over there, that's when we want to tune in and make sure that young person is getting all the support they deserve. That's Lisa Damore speaking about her book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. She was in conversation with NPR's Rachel Martin. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Linda Holmes. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Elena Burnett, Courtney Dorning, Phil Harrell, Kai McNamee, Jason Fuller, Justine Kennan, Andrew Craig, Dee Parvaz, Destiny Adams, and Rena Advani. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.